you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 49 of Reclaiming the Faith a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for praying for me and praying for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Please continue to lift me up and my family up as we're going through this new season as I look for a a new job and we're kind of pressing the reset button on a few things. So yeah, thank you so much for those prayers. Well, in episode 49, I'm going to be giving you an audio version of chapter 11 of my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. This chapter is entitled, Giving Keys to Thieves, and it discusses several reasons that people can be demonized. It also details the power of repentance and gaining victory over the powers of darkness. There's a pretty heavy mix of both testimony and scripture as I go through this chapter, so I really hope it's an encouragement to you. Well, if you're blessed by today's episode, I really want to encourage you to leave a positive review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Doing so will greatly help me out, as well as uh, reviewing my new album, which is also on iTunes in different places, this new album called The Shadows EP. If you've listened to it and you like those songs, please do me a favor and head over to iTunes and leave a positive review and rating. And also, if you've read my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, please head over to Amazon and also leave a rating and review there. That will help others so much and me as well. If you want to contact me, you can go to my website, philsbaker.com, and you can find my uh, email contact there, which is email philsbaker at gmail.com. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about this episode or any episodes that we talk about or maybe an ethical question, send me or BDK an email and we will be happy to answer your question on Ready With An Answer, which we do once a month. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, well, let's go ahead and get episode 49 rolling. This is chapter 11 of New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, entitled, Giving Keys to Thieves. This is an excerpt from my journal from June 19th, 2004, when I was in Swaziland, Africa. A lady named Becky came to Yako last night 
and asked if he and I would pray for her the next morning. Earlier in her life, she was heavily involved with the occult and Jainism, the religion of her family, but she converted to Christianity as a teenager. A few years ago, she began to have severe panic and anxiety attacks, along with frequent nightmares and evil visions during the daytime. She would sometimes be sitting in class at her university, and the walls would suddenly turn to blood, and demonic-looking spiders would crawl toward her. It was around this time that she married her husband, Doug. Becky and Doug had several ministries pray for her spiritual healing, but nothing positive ever came from those encounters. In fact, things only became worse. However, just before they came to Swaziland, Becky felt that God wanted to heal her during the trip. Doug is a Christian, but he had been struggling in his faith and wrestling with a substantial amount of doubt. I had a strong feeling going into the prayer room this morning that God wanted to do something special in Doug, but I wasn't sure exactly what. Becky sat in a chair in the middle of the prayer room while Doug leaned up against the wall about 10 to 15 feet away. Yako and I placed our hands on Becky's head and back and began to pray. Yako first. He began to rebuke any demons or evil spirits in Jesus' name and by his blood, but nothing seemed to happen. After about five minutes, I began to pray out loud, yet still nothing happened. That was the point I began to realize God's purpose for Doug. Doug was standing behind us, watching everything, and hadn't said a word for about 10 minutes. God showed me that if Doug did not open his mouth and begin to intercede for his wife, similar to my situation with Bob, Becky would not be set free. My purpose in that moment was not to cast out any demons. That was Doug's job. My purpose was to intercede for Doug So, I prayed out loud that Doug would cry out to the Lord for his wife. Then suddenly, Doug slowly came forward, tears flowing from his eyes, and started to intercede for his wife. And with ever-increasing boldness and compassion, Doug pleaded for God to set Becky free. The Holy Spirit began to fill us, and the evil spirits began to leave Becky. Becky's stomach began to heave, and she leaned forward and repeatedly coughed up a clear fluid to the ground. There was a lull, and we continued to silently pray for her. My hand suddenly felt the muscles in her back pulsating, and I realized there was at least one more evil spirit inside her. God told me to encourage Doug to keep praying out loud, And Becky said that we needed to pray against the spirit of anxiety. Doug prayed for her with even more compassion and faith, and she began heaving and coughing again with more fluid coming out. Once again, after several minutes, there was a lull. And then, after a minute or two, I felt her back pulsating, 
And Becky told us we now needed to pray against the spirit that was causing the evil day visions and nightmares. So we did, with Doug mostly leading the way. For the last 30 minutes or so, as Doug had been praying, I had one hand on on Becky's back and one on Doug's. As Doug was casting out the third spirit, I felt him shaking and growing weak. It seemed like the evil spirit Doug was casting out of his wife was trying to enter him. So I intensely prayed for God to protect Doug and place the full armor of God on all of us. Soon, Doug straightened up and got back to interceding for his wife, who once again began coughing out the same liquid substance as before. About 45 or 50 minutes had passed since we began praying for Becky, and she said she finally felt at peace. We then asked the Holy Spirit to fill her completely, to remove anything unclean in her, and not allow those things to ever return. After about three minutes, she had one small spasm in her back and one last cough, expelling the last of the fluid. It was over. As Doug walked with the Spirit through that scary situation, not only did, did God set his wife free, but he also set Doug free from the doubts that had been plaguing him. That's the end of the journal entry. Now, I'm not sure why Becky was still being tormented and oppressed by evil spirits after becoming born again and receiving Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And I say with confidence that she was born again due to the fact that the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits was present in her in her to assist us in, us in casting out the evil spirits in her. Jesus tells us that Satan does not cast out Satan. So what then are some reasons why Christians can be oppressed by demons and evil spirits while still having the Holy Spirit in them? To tackle this issue, I'm going to again turn to Derek Prince, the scriptures, and the early church writings. First, leaning on Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 through 5, Derek Prince states a person's family background and false religions can lead to demonic oppression even after that person receives Christ. Prince writes, quote, God warns us against all forms of idolatry or other involvement with false gods. The evil consequences of these particular sins can extend to four generations. I have discovered that such babies are often demonized before they emerge from the womb. This is particularly true of people with backgrounds in Eastern religions such as Hinduism or Buddhism or false religions such as Freemasonry or Mormonism. End quote. Yoga is sweeping the West. Many Christians practice yoga for supposed health reasons and even take part in yoga classes at their churches. But is Christian yoga even possible? Subhas R. Tiwari, a professor at the Hindu University of America, writes, quote, The simple, immutable fact is that yoga originated from the Vedic or Hindu culture 
and the effort to separate yoga from Hinduism must be challenged because it runs counter to the fundamental principles upon which yoga itself is premised. Efforts to separate yoga from its spiritual center reveal ignorance of the goal of yoga. End quote. Dave Hunt writes that Hindus believe, quote, yoga was introduced by Lord Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita as the sure way to Hindu heaven, and Shiva, one of the most feared Hindu deities known as the Destroyer, is addressed as Yogishwara, Lord of Yoga. One of the most authoritative Hatha Yoga texts, the 15th century Hatha Yoga Pratapika by Svatmarama, lists Lord Shiva as the first Hatha Yoga teacher. Jesus says that he is the only way to the Father in John 14, 6. But in Hinduism, Lord Krishna says yoga is the sure way to Hindu heaven. Jesus says he has come to give us life to the fullest, but that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10, 10. And the Hindu god known as the destroyer is the first yoga teacher. Hmm. Hunt continues, quote, The goal of all yoga is to obtain oneness with the universe. That's also known as the process of enlightenment or union with the Brahman, which is Hinduism's highest god. The word yoga means union or to yoke. If Hinduism is a pantheistic religion and Christianity is monotheistic, can there possibly be any union between the two? Also, yoga is designed to yoke an individual to the Brahman. What do scriptures say about that? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, Stop becoming unevenly yoked with unbelievers. What partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony exists between the Messiah and Belial? Or what do a believer and an unbeliever have in common? What agreement can a temple of God make with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. God will not be yoked with a false deity, and therefore neither should his people. Unfortunately, though, it gets even more serious. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 through 18, Moses warns the Hebrew people against the idolatrous yoking practices of their forefathers. He writes, But Jeshurun forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. 
The people were worshiping demons, though most likely they were unaware of it. But God was aware, and it was an abomination in his eyes. Paul comments on this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 22, when he writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And since there is one bread, we who are many form one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shiva the Hindu destroyer god, taught people through yoga to yoke themselves to the Brahman in order to achieve enlightenment and become one with the universe. Paul wrote that when we partake in idolatry, we can become a sharer in demons. Literally, he says that when we engage in these idolatrous, idolatrous practices, we can fellowship with demons. Shiva isn't being completely forthright with us, then is he? Jesus said, whenever Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You can see John 8, 40, 44. Peter taught that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's 1 Peter 5.8. So may we repent of all these forms of idolatry. A second avenue by which demons and evil spirits can gain access to our lives is through occult practices. According to Prince, modern examples of divination include fortune-telling, palm-reading, psychics, Ouija board, and horoscopes. Sorcery is similar to divination, but involves the use of tools such as drugs, potions, charms, amulets, magic, spells, incantations, and various forms of music. A third branch of the occult includes spiritism, a medium or a spiritist's general form of activity is known as a seance. And the final area Prince refers to concerning the occult is witchcraft. He writes, quote, Witchcraft is the universal, primeval religion of fallen humanity. When the human race turned from God in rebellion, the power that moved in was witchcraft. As the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. 
Prince notes that primitive witchcraft normally includes a form of priesthood, rituals and liturgies, sacrifices, and covenants that bind the participants to whatever demonic or satanic being is the focal point of their activity. Prince lists four main purposes of witchcraft. Quote, one, to propitiate a higher spiritual being. Two, to control the forces of nature. Three, to ward off sickness and infertility. Four, to control other human beings, to terrify enemies in battle, or to produce sexual desire in one person toward another, unquote. Witchcraft in the West, according to Prince, operates on four levels. First, open and public, respectable. Second, underground covens. Third, disguised within society and the church. And fourth, a work of the flesh. When I was a kid, not bathing for a week didn't faze me. I just went right along playing basketball and football every day after school, getting dirty and smelly with the other boys who were hygienically challenged like myself. I'm sure I was detestable in the nostrils of many of my teachers and female classmates. Know that while people in your circles of influence may look on some of these occult practices as fun, helpful, neutral, or laughable, God has strong feelings about them. In Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12, God tells us the practices listed above are detestable, and the people who do such things are detestable to him. And the word detestable is used three times in those verses. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul was given a mission to completely destroy all of the Amalekites and their possessions. Saul obeyed partially, but not fully. He left their king alive. He kept the best of their possessions and set up a monument for himself. When Samuel confronted Saul about his disobedience, Saul claimed to have kept the spoils of the battle as offerings to the Lord, but he couldn't make up a decent lie for keeping the king alive against God's orders. And Samuel said to him, quote, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Those are verses 22 through 23. God soon allowed an evil spirit to begin tormenting Saul. From this story, we can deduce our third point, an attitude of rebellion or rebellious actions can lead to demonization. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 through 45, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So after the house was emptied, meaning the evil spirit was cast out, the house wasn't subsequently filled. Jesus says the man's lack of being filled allowed for seven additional evil spirits to invade him. So what then prevented the man from having his house or life filled and thus opened him to demons. Well, again, Derek Prince writes, quote, Any act of deliberate wrongdoing may open the way for a demon. Many such acts are possible. Telling a premeditated lie, for instance, or shoplifting, or cheating on exams. Again, it may not be a single act that opens the door, it may well be the deliberate, persistent practice of a sinful act that eventually becomes a habit. Secret sins like repeated fornication or pornography viewing almost inevitably open the way for demons. But other more respectable habits can have a similar effect. Frequent overeating opens the way for a demon of gluttony. Habitual exaggeration and conversation opens the way for a lying spirit, unquote. Now, I realize phrases like demon of gluttony or lying spirit may be unfamiliar to you. Perhaps you've only been exposed to teaching that states there are only generic demons and evil spirits, but the Bible is much more specific Excluding the ranks of rebellious angels, Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, some other names of demonic spirits found in Scripture include the goat demon from Leviticus 17, an evil spirit in 1 Samuel 16, a lying spirit in 1 Kings 22, a spirit of judgment, see Isaiah 4, a spirit of burning, also in Isaiah 4.4, also a spirit of distortion in Isaiah 19, a spirit of harlotry in Hosea 4, an unclean spirit in Mark 1, a deaf and mute spirit in Mark 9, a spirit of divination in Acts 16, and a spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1. You know, there are several other additional types of demons not specifically listed in Scripture, but connected with sin issues, sickness, or strongholds in our lives. Sometimes, the sinful act committed by one person leads to demonization in another. Such is the case with spirits of trauma. Francis McNutt writes that spirits of trauma, quote, Enter a person not through the victim's sin, but through someone else's, unquote. 
A person is almost killed by a drunk driver. A man abuses his wife or child. A person performs satanic ritual abuse. A young lady is raped. A parent is forced to bury his child. A single mom gets laid off. A little boy is kidnapped. Traumas come in all kinds of forms. McNutt continues, quote, Spirits of trauma are the most common category of evil spirits that afflict people. When these spirits identify themselves, they give names like grief, rejection, or fear. These are not sins, of course, but represent our most common emotions. Emotions are one of God's gifts to humanity and help us move to action. Fear in and of itself is not a problem, but fear as a spirit can invade the emotion of excessive fear, which is a problem, and make it more of a problem. Demonic fear blocks its victim's free will so that he behaves irrationally and is tempted to commit desperate acts. A fourth way Christians allow demons to oppress them is through sustained anger combined with an unwillingness to forgive. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27, Paul writes, quote, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity, unquote. The word translated opportunity in this verse is top on and has a lexical range that includes place, region, seat, and opportunity. Jesus says in John 14, 2, that he is going to go to God the Father to prepare a top on, a dwelling place for his disciples. Staying angry with someone and refusing to forgive him or her is like handing a thief the key to to your house. Specifically, Paul tells us this thief is the devil, and the house for which the key is made is our body. To be sure, handing over the key to your house is not the same as signing over the deed to that person. Just because someone has a key to your house does not mean he or she owns it. We still own the house. If you have been born again, God has bought you with a price, and your body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. The devil cannot own or possess something that is owned or possessed by God. However, if you have given away the key to your house to him, he has the ability to cause much damage to your life. Again, as Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Knowing this, why would you willingly give the key of your house to a thief? Unfortunately, I have seen two situations in which prolonged anger combined with an unwillingness to forgive allowed evil spirits to torment a Christian. These two individuals had anger toward family members, and their unwillingness to obey the Lord and forgive caused them to be actively tormented by evil spirits. Both of these people would frequently hear audible, evil, and berating voices. 
One of these people heard voices telling him to do harmful, malevolent things to others. Both individuals experienced deliverance once they repented of the sins of prolonged anger and unforgiveness. They experienced the Spirit of God cast out the evil spirits from their bodies through the power, authority, name, and blood of Jesus Christ. Both of these Christians felt incredible spiritual and physical relief as a result of the repentance and deliverance that had taken place. One of the two was finally able to start having a full night's sleep after roughly two decades of restless nights. Therefore, a lack of repentance of past sins is the fifth reason a person can be demonized even after receiving Christ. Just like new wine needs to be put into fresh wineskins, repentance must accompany a born-again experience. If it doesn't, many messes will ensue. John the Baptist, Jesus, the Twelve Apostles, and Paul all preached the necessity of repentance. However, through, though repentance is sometimes preached in today's church, it is often just given lip service when someone comes forward to be a Christian. A pastor will ask, Have you repented of your sins? If the person says yes and affirms general questions about the deity and saving work of Jesus, he or she is usually allowed to be baptized. But this was not the case with the early Christians. Second century Christian apologist Justin Martyr writes, Quote, I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their past sins. The rest of us pray and fast with them. They are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we were regenerated ourselves. They there receive the washing with water in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. For Christ also said, Unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. Can you imagine how much healthier our churches would be if we took repentance and baptism as seriously as the early church? Can you imagine how tightly knit our communities of faith would be if we fasted and prayed with a new brother or sister who was also fasting and praying in preparation for baptism? Jesus said that when we are one, just as he and the Father are one, the world will know that God sent him and loves us just as he loves Jesus. That's in John 17, 22 through 23. Can you imagine scores upon scores of non-Christians putting their complete trust in Christ and the church being perfected in unity? If you've been involved of any of the practices I've discussed, know that there is hope for you. The God of hope is ready and willing to incline to you, hear your cry, and rescue you if you fully yield yourself to him and repent. 
Find someone, a pastor, a Christian counselor, a Bible study leader, someone strong in the faith, and practice in faith the words of James 5.16, quote, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, unquote. Agree with God about the evil nature of these practices. Fully turn away from them and don't let them ruin your life. Turn your life over to Jesus. Don't let the devil beat you down, keep you in shame, and cause you to resist grace. You probably didn't realize the full weight of what you were doing. Many of the leaders who were responsible for killing Jesus, the author of life, also acted in ignorance. As Peter said to them in Acts 3, 17 through 19, Brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. Peter was a man who made many mistakes. Have you ever wondered why, after his resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? I've heard sermons about this passage in John 21, and often the preacher will say that Jesus was restoring Peter to ministry since Peter had earlier denied knowing Jesus three times. But let me suggest that there was more going on in that moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. And basically, that means God keeps every promise He makes. Early in Jesus' ministry, Peter heard Jesus promise, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 10, verse 32 through 33. I believe Peter remembered the latter portion of that promise and thought all hope for him was lost. That's why he was almost to the point of giving up on being a disciple of Jesus and had decided to go back into the fishing business. However, Jesus keeps all of his promises. In Romans 2.4, Paul tells us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. So, in his kindness, Jesus helped Peter do the hard work of repentance on that beach that day. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter said yes and called Jesus his Lord in front of the others. Three times, Jesus told Peter to be a shepherd to his flock, the church. Yes, Peter was restored to ministry that day. But more crucially, he was restored spiritually. When Peter addressed the crowds in Acts 3 and called them to repent, promising times of refreshing from the Lord if they would obey the promptings of the Spirit, he was speaking from empathy experience, and a hope-filled, repentant heart that knew the depth of God's kindness. And if God can spiritually restore Peter and many of the people who played a part in having Jesus killed, 
he can restore you as well. May the Lord of heaven and earth bring you up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and set your feet on the rock to make your footsteps firm. May the Lord rescue you and deliver you as you submit fully to him. May you turn away from evil and do good. May you seek peace and pursue it. And as you do, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. God bless you. a child before hope fades disappointment sets in wake me to your wonder and shake me from this slumber and 